Hello, Paceliners. Michael Houghton here. Again, opening a show on a bicycle, pedaling. Uh, this time, though, I'm uh, much, much closer to sea level. But I wanted to open the show on a bike again, riding for the purposes of just a quick demonstration. And the demonstration is the difference between high altitude and sea level. So as you can tell, I'm riding right now, and as in show 29, when I opened that on a bike, I'm on pavement, I'm on a mountain bike, the grade is about the same, I'm going about as fast as I was then, the distance I'm gonna cover is about the same, but I think you'll notice, and we can go to the tape, I think you'll notice my breathing now it's much more regular, not as labored, <laughs> not as stressful as I was in show 29. So now I've covered about two long blocks. And as you can tell, my breathing is getting labored. And like I said, this is paved. It's 5% and I'm supposedly fresh. You get my point? I hope so. Anyhow, this is show 31, and I'm fully recovered. <laughs> Feeling good. Uh, we got plenty to talk about here on the Pace Line. Thanks for finding us. Thanks for finding our little show. Patrick and Fatty will be right along. Paceline, the podcast on two wheels. Thanks for finding our show, folks. Uh, again, you can always find us on iTunes and Stitcher. And go you know where I found us this week, guys? On Podbean, whatever that is. Podbean. The Paceline. Oh, they is have on the best beans. They do have the greatest beans, pinto or black, <laughs> and they have the Paceline podcast, which is quite cool. So, wide distribution of the Paceline so far. Refried yeah. podcast. Well, we haven't done a refried <laughs> podcast yet. That would be re redoing one, I think. That would be a rerun. <laughs> or that would be taking one and making it even better, which is what refried beans are. They're beans we have, that, you're, we that haven't, are fried and made better. <laughs> we haven't introduced the episode, and we're already off the rails. That's okay. <laughs> Oops. Th this show, Sorry, folks. This show may wander all over the place. You never know. Uh, fatcyclist.com supports the pace line, of course, and Fatty is always ready to pitch in. Hello, Fatty. Hey there. Hey, I got a dog last week. I saw that. That is so cool. And a big one. Oh, yeah. I welcomed an 18-month English Mastiff named Duke to our house, and everyone loves him. Uh, he is the laziest, friendliest, slobberiest dog I've ever seen, and uh, just it's a pleasure to have a dog at your feet. Mm-hmm. You are so outdoing me. You have children. I have no kids. I've brought nobody into this life, into this world. And you have a dog, which is the least I could do for my wife is bring a dog into her life. And and I'm the only dog she has. So, man, you, you're you putting me to shame. You get that? A lot of dogs out there waiting to be rescued, man. I know. Okay. Uh, RedKitePrayer.com is the home site for the Pace Line. Patrick Brady, uh, I think you must be packing your bags for some type of extravagant road trip. 
well, <laughs> easy on the extravagant, but road trip, yes. Uh, yeah, my my bags are packed, and uh, the moment we stop recording, I'm getting in my car to head to SFO. Nice. Well, happy travels. Uh, by the time this podcast, I suppose, is out on Podbean or wherever you might find it, Patrick will be <laughs> Patrick will be well out of uh, his current time zone. So that's cool. I uh, guess I should give a shout out to uh, Bell and Jiro for the uh, event that I'll be attending. Some new product introductions. We're headed to Zurich and then on to uh, Friedrichshafen. So should be pretty interesting. I'll be doing some other stuff as well. Oh, Did you say Friedrichshafen? <laughs> Friedrichshafen. <laughs> Gesundheit. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Kleenex. So, Fatty, <laughs> um, I understand you might have a... That is a, a bit of a, a race hangover going on. What's going on with you? Dude, stop talking so loud. My <laughs> head is pounding. <laughs> oh, I do. I have a, I have a huge, uh, I, I don't know if it's like a post Christmas letdown feeling or hangover or what, but after the race, which we promised not to name in this episode, I believe. <laughs> and so I'm not going to, but you know, I think that it's an incredibly common experience for cyclists to have an A event and you are laser focused on that. I know Pat, I know, I know, well, I don't know, Patrick, if you do did have an A event that is behind you now, but I know for sure, Michael, that you did, cause it was the same one as mine, <laughs> but you know, it, once you, it happens, whether it went really well or really poorly or somewhere in between, you just feel kind of. I don't know, out there. And I'm wondering, are you guys, are you guys still motivated this time of year? Or are you having the same experience as me where you know that the weather's cooled down and you have decent fitness? I should be wanting to ride and out there having fun like never before. But instead, I am just like, eh, you know, don't really have anything to train for, don't have a race to get going for. And so, I know I'd enjoy myself, but uh, I get a lot of work to do and I, yeah, I'm not getting out there anywhere near as much. Um, are you guys having the same experience? Nope. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> I want to hear the why. Why not? Um, well, Levi's Fondo is around the corner. It's what, five weeks away. Um, and I want to drop a couple pounds between now and then. I don't know how successful I'll be while I'm in Europe. I have a, a <laughs> suspicion that I'm going to get fed some beer, uh, and that could, uh, curtail those efforts, but, uh, I plan to try anyway. Um, and then once Levi's is over, it's cross season and I'm hoping to do more than just the Santa Rosa cup this year. So mm. I'm really, I'm, I'm excited about racing cyclocross, uh, this season. I really plan to do that. So, uh, blase. No, not me. Mm -hmm. Awesome. How about now, you, Michael? Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you. Every year I do this big event, this unnamed big event. I come out of it with this malaise. I mean, it's hard for anything really to live up. You know, it's like going to um, a big show or even a big rock concert, and you go and listen to music or or listen to somebody else perform, and nothing really lives up to what you've just gone through, right? So, and, and, and for some reason, we're looking to match that. And I don't know why, because... Mm -hmm. You can't go out on your local trails and match what you just went through. It's just they're, they're, it's apples. Oh, and just oranges. say it. Leadville. Okay, you said it. But we didn't. We didn't. 
Exactly. So, <laughs> and we're not going to. So, I, you know, oh. I, I feel you, Fatty. Um, yeah, yeah. There, there is a little bit of a hangover. That said, uh, I've tried to pick out a few things to do. There's a 50 mile or 50, actually, a 62 mile gravel grinder adventure ride this weekend. I'll probably you know, try to motivate for. I've been out on a couple of mountain bike rides so far. Um, yeah. So, yeah, trying to kickstart things um and 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 move ahead but yeah you know look you What's and i love funny. that place we love it we love yeah. being there and and it, nothing really lives up to to that plus it was vacation you were on vacation sure. and now you're back yeah. working yeah yeah there's that uh, you and i sound like junkies right it's like well i'm trying to find this i'm trying to find that i gotta get my next fit fix i to show how how desperate I am to have the the thrill of racing again. There is a um, there is a race close to where I live that I was only vaguely aware of, and it's a race that apparently nobody is signing up for. I checked the roster, and there's like ten people signed up for it. I'm going to sign up for that race and do it this weekend. Good. And just <laughs> I'm going to race against. 10 people, one of which is in my age group. <laughs> so it's, I got a certain podium, man. I'm <laughs> feeling it. I feel it. Um, and my wife and daughter, they're also signing up for it. And this is actually kind of interesting. It, it, so far, no women have signed up for this race. So if they sign up, they will be the only two women racing this. And it's actually going to be kind of an interesting Mother versus daughter, old versus young, single speed versus geared, you know, just a total uh, match up of opposites for them to hammer out. And it's a it's a long course, too. Right. Uh, in wife's fast in uphill daughters, fast it downhill. Um, you know, so their race will be interesting mm -hmm. for 50 miles. Um, I I'm just going to go out there and just sort of beat my brains out racing against nobody. Um, on courses that I, you know, on, on a course that I race or not race ride recreationally all the time, but yeah, I'm going to go ahead and pay a hundred dollars just so I can feel like I'm racing again. How are the hammer and the monster doing, by the way? I mean, do they have the same malaise Do they have the same oh, yeah. hangover effect? Oh yeah. We went riding yesterday and all three of us were talking. It's like, uh, I feel like my riding is purposeless now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even as I, as, as we say that, we're like, what is wrong with us? Mm -hmm. Um, cause I mean, that's not ostensibly why we ride anyway, right? We ride because we love riding. We love cause we ride because we like being outside. We love being, you know, the, the feeling of the bike underneath us. We love all of these things. But once you start racing, the race kind of becomes the all consuming thing. Right. And yeah, it, it's kind of crazy that way. I just as an aside, um, I very recently with, uh, the cycling tips podcast just posted an interview I did with Floyd Landis and he actually talks about cycling as the most potent drug he's ever taken and that he sees the addiction as something that is very real and potentially dangerous. <laughs> um, so it's it, worth listening to for certain, um, not just for that part, but partially because of that part. So, yeah, I mean, seriously, we sound like 
a self-help group of people who are only barely at the first of the 12 steps. Yeah. I don't know how much good you're doing too by um, this uh, rolling, uh, these rolling blog entries you're going to have on your big race too, <laughs> which have only started. So I think you're only going to perpetuate yeah. this, this feeling you're having of, oh man, nothing's living up. And so I guess I would point you to actually to your partner, to an article uh, Patrick wrote that really resonated with me about this time of year. And it's in his book, Why We Ride, and you could probably find it if you Google it too, but Why We Ride is a collection of Patrick's essays. And he wrote a piece called Junk Miles that just, mm -hmm. I think I read it about this time of year. It was September, or maybe it was September a little later. It was just as the race season was kind of fizzle out. And Patrick talked about how great this time of year can be. Uh, even though your writing seems pointless, you don't have a goal, but you've got all this kind of cool fitness. Why not go out and just have, just have fun with it? An, an agendaless yep. an time of year where you can just use this fitness for, for whatever you want. I mean, you could use it for hiking or swimming or obviously doing great rides. Am I, did I get that right, Patrick? Is that, was that the point of yeah. junk miles? Yeah. The alternative is just to be like me and ride junk miles all year long. <laughs> <laughs> enjoy your bike always what a concept yeah well i mean i just uh i mean i'll go hard on a climb or something i'll i will make efforts but i i am not the structured training guy that you are fatty i'm i'm just not that dude well that's new to me i mean i've been riding for 20 years and this uh racing obsession is pretty new and i expect that like most obsessions it'll wax peak and wane but um i'm yeah, for right now, I still think about races um, all the time. It, it's crazy what uh, what an extremely strong addiction it is. And it's not like I am always on the podium either and have you know an addiction to winning. It's the race itself. I know that I'm going to be in the middle third of a given field, right? I'm the very definition of a mid-pack racer. But I still love it. <laughs> I just do. So yeah, I miss it. And, and yeah, I, uh, I actually, I think you make an interesting, uh, observation about, well, you know, cyclocross is coming. That's something I've never done. Maybe that's, uh, and, but, and I do now have a really terrific cyclocross bike. Um, the, uh, felt FRDX and, uh, with, uh, and I, I'll go ahead and say it so you guys can drool a little bit. So, that frame with the uh, M NVM50 wheels and cockpit and a uh, a force drivetrain. I am, you know, I'm golden. I have a really, really <laughs> nice bike. I, I'm golden. If you weren't, we'd need to talk. Yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, I should probably go ahead and take it out and get it a little bit muddy is, uh, I guess, the thought. So, yeah, I, I, I just need to um, go ahead and feed my addiction some more you know we're gonna Start get we're gonna get into uh some olympics discussion here uh, guys but while we're on the subject of cross do i what do you guys think about cross in the olympics i mean to me it it belongs there but how about you guys you think cross has a spot somewhere in the olympic games they've screwed Absolutely. everything else up why not <laughs> I mean, on a more serious note, I'm really upset about them, including skateboarding. It's like, oh, my God, this is going to ruin skateboarding. Mm -hmm. it, it's just going to be awful. Um, you know, skateboarding should remain underground. Um, but golf is in the Olympics. 
Uh, they got BMX in the Olympics. Cross just seems maybe because cross has has no obvious winter or summer position. I mean, but let's well, I mean, if they include it in the Winter Olympics, then it's like, oh, game on. Okay. I mean, it's already under the UCI, so it's already been you know meddled with horribly. Uh, so it's not like it can, can get worse from, you know, being an IOC sport as well. Uh, so, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, you know, could that result in some television time for, for cycling? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if that's the, uh, end game here that cycling could get on TV, thanks to the Olympics, then let's get to it. Well, while you're in Europe, Patrick, swing on by the IOC and, uh, (laughs) use your considerable influence to push for cross in the Olympic games. Well, the last time I, I had something to say that the UCI listened to, they muddled it up pretty badly. Uh, that was the truth and reconciliation commission that became the Cirque, And, uh, they screwed that up pretty royally. So, uh, I'm, I don't think I'm going to give them any more ideas. You were so cynical. Well, on to, on to Rio, uh, and the Olympic games. Um, the cross-country races were some of the last events of the, of the Rio Games. And, you know, I, I think in the end, they did very little to help Fatty with his malaise and maybe some of his hangover because the racing was just, eh, okay. And if it wasn't for Peter Sagan entered in the men's race, I don't know what there would have been to get excited about uh, other than the fire that happened near the cross-country course a few days before it, before the the races started, um, and the rain in between the women's race Saturday and Sunday morning of the men's race. But Sagan, uh, who we were all kind of laser focused on because he had skipped the road race and decided to enter the cross country mountain bike race, says he felt he could have made the top 10 at the Olympic mountain bike cross country race Sunday, but was ultimately, of course, left disappointed after an early flat and then a subsequent flat. Sagan had the number 50 zip-tied to his bars. That means he was starting at the back in a field of 49. It must have been a miss out, I guess, uh, for the entries. He was lined up behind riders from Guam, Rwanda, Hong Kong. So you get the idea. He um, was at the back. Um, And even before he got to the start line, though, you know, there were rumblings that things were not looking so great for Peter. Uh, He looked tentative during practice laps and even missed Messed up that is a few times in the rock gardens as he practiced those. Let's have a listen to Peter just before the, the start of the race and what some of his thoughts were going into the Sunday main event. Uh, for sure, Tour de France is uh, nothing to do with mountain bikes. That's for sure. And uh, yeah, effort on the road bikes is uh, very different from effort in mountain bikes. And uh, also, you don't, I, you cannot compare also with time trial. It's uh, Maybe you can compare with cyclocross, but uh, it's still mountain bike is something different. And uh, you know, all these questions we can uh, after make after Sunday, if uh, it's enough my training, if uh, I'm I was prepared or something. Uh, now I did my best. I want to do my best, and uh, hey, nobody don't knows what what they can expect, but. <laughs> That is funny, huh? Well, I start with mountain bikes, and uh, for me, it's always special, like something more funny. And uh, it's not, uh, you know, something like it's 
really rare for me or like I'm trained on the mountain bike also home, uh, especially this year. But uh, for sure it's something different. I didn't do, uh, I mean, like World Cup or uh, the big races, but uh, then I am here for the biggest race in the world. And <laughs> that is funny, no? Uh, my preparation, if I have to focus on the mountain bike, I have to do maybe two, three years, you know, and uh, then I did Tour de France, I think it's not the best, but uh, still, I'm uh, on the bike, if you are on the road bike or mountain bike, no, I'm taking uh, things a different way, but, well, what I can do, this is the question. <laughs> Like, uh, I did my best and uh, I want to try. It's uh, nothing bad for that, I think. Um, you guys hear any level of confidence there? <laughs> for him, surprisingly not. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think um, he sounded a little resigned, actually, just even going into the race that, oh, I'm going to start in 50th place. I'm going to give it a go. But And, and that seems opposite of what the, the guy we really know, the guy we've come to love who exudes, you know, confidence and bravado and wheelies and all of that. Uh, so Sunday does arrive, and by then the skeptics, too, are in full swing about this whole thing, claiming this this whole mountain bike thing by Sagan is a publicity stunt. To that, Sagan said, watch this. The gun goes off, and Pete takes off. And by the first turn, he was in the top 10. And, man, I was going then. I was like, all right, here we go. Game on. Uh, moments later, he was in the leading group of three, and things continue to look good. People are buzzing all of a sudden, but uh, then disaster struck shortly after Sagan puncturing, and he had to ride a flat front uh, for most of the second lap to get to the pit and get a change out. And of course, by then, you know, Scherter and Yaroslav Kolhavi were the established leaders and taking off, and Sagan was just uh, recovering from his flat. And then he had another flat after a fall, and that was kind of the end of things. Um, Shagan ended up in 35th. They actually stopped him on the leader's lap, so they just gave him 35th in the end. And, of course, Nino Schurter won it. Pretty boring race uh, with him just riding away and, and being out front. Defending gold medalist Cole Javi was silver, and some Spanish guy got the bronze. So, you know, uh, in the absence of a, of a Sagan attack and uh, competitive move, uh, I think, you know, we got kind of a, a blah race in the end. Now, the mud... Some of the slickness did um, did make for some interesting riding and a few crashes, but uh, nothing to get. What do, I don't know if you guys watched the race, but oh yeah, is is there any way they can make this better? Is, is there some way? Is there is there something missing here that could they could do they need a bigger field? What needs to happen here to to bring a little more competition into this race? Seems like a one guy just kind of running away with it is not what we want out of a, out of a gold medal event. I certainly enjoyed watching the race. I was crushed when when uh, uh, Sagan, you know, disappeared out of the top group. Um, I would pay money to see his move from last to third. I mean, you got to figure that the guys from you know Guam and whatever Ethiopia, wherever else there were riders from, probably a lot of those guys were just moving over and getting out of the way <laughs> to allow him to pass. But then. You know, somewhere around the top, you know, top 20, top 15, he had to start elbowing his way through and hip checking guys. Um, 
That's the part I would love to see. I would love to see how he moved through that part of the mm-hmm. traffic. Um, but, you know, I mean, while I despised the course on one hand for being as artificial as a golf course, on the other hand, from a standpoint of technical challenge, holy cow, I could not have cleaned that course, especially the, the, the one, uh, uh, kind of set of stairs of, of the, uh, you know, the telephone poles. Right. Um, i there's never been a point in my life where I would have ridden something like that. Yeah. I am just not that variety of athlete. Yeah. Especially after the rain, things did get slick and we saw a couple of riders going down pretty heavy too, um, on, on the slick rocks and on those, on those telephone poles. So yeah, things got, it, it did get a little interesting, technically speaking. Um, here's a revelation though, from the race, there was an American entered. Did you know? Yeah. Thanks, NBC. <laughs> Not that they for, showed him. I know. Thanks, NBC, <laughs> for pointing out that Howard Grotz of Durango was entered. He gave everything on the on the course. He kept getting knocked down, kept getting up, battled his way to 38th in the event. Uh, that was his that was his finishing spot. Grotz was in good spirits at the end, despite suffering two crashes, two flat tires, and a bent seat. American women wow. did better. Yeah, American women did better the day before. Leah Davidson fought her way to seventh. And Chloe Woodruff of Prescott, Arizona, crossed the finish line in 14th after suffering a first lap mechanical that saw her chase back from last place. So last to 14th for Chloe Woodruff in the women's cross-country race. Uh, Rio Gear, cross-country gear. Um, Sagan, now he had two flats. And Fatty, you will probably roll your eyes when you hear what he was running. Specialized S-Works, front and rear, fast racks. Fast track on the front, or renegade on the rear. I get it; he wants to go fast, but um, a, a guy of that amount of power who can yeah. probably punish a bike the way he does, running that light of a tire, is risking a lot. Yeah, yeah, he should have had controls on. I mean, that's obvious from here. Um, I, I don't. I think he had the right kind of tire, but yeah, it was way, way too light for that. I guess. You, you gamble, you take the risk, and you know he he was obviously going uh, with intention of pursuing the medal or you know go big or go home. He was the very picture of that, uh, and it like you say, it's sad when it winds up that the between those two options, he wound up going home. Right. Scott bikes had a nice August in the dirt. You know Todd Wells rode yeah. a hardtail the victory at that 103 mile race in Colorado. Then he backed it up with another V at the six stage Breck Epic. Both mountain bike gold medals were on Scott Sparks, the full suspension XC bike from Scott. Nino Schurter rode the Spark 900. That's the 29er version. Normally, uh, Nino runs a uh, Dugas tubulars, but he switched them out from Maxis tubeless clinchers. I'm guessing they were probably the icons. And then uh, Sweden's Jenny Rizved rode a Spark 700 to gold. That's a 27 and a half bike. The ladies had, of course, dry conditions, so she did run the tubulars on uh, DT Swiss carbon wheels. Uh, mm. So that's your equipment roundup um, from the Rio games. And again, sp- uh, rather Scott uh, doing rather nicely here in August. Yeah, they've they've scored a bunch of really significant wins showing just how good their bikes are. Um, I've been riding a, a Genius Plus of late and really loving that bike. Uh, did you see anything about uh, uh, inflation? You know, what sort of tire pressure guys were running 
um, on sun on the Sunday race? No, I looked around not for the Rio games. I I did not see what what they were running there. Um, all I uh, the only recent inflation I had was from last week's show with Todd ran um, up in the high country, but nothing on the Rio. I was wondering the same thing. I, I figured they would be in the you know low twenties somewhere, but um, and mud is something that we out west don't have to deal a great deal with a, a lot of so. How do you change inflation to adjust for mud? I'm not even certain on that. Well, I was noticing considerable tire squish uh, mm-hmm. when they were in that one really muddy spot, you know, where you could see the bikes start to slide and you'd see the sidewalls kind of go. Um, so they were do- they were definitely running really low pressures. So I was kind of curious. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. Okay. Um, and I'd like to say one other thing about the Olympic athletes before we um, – we leave the Rio games for good, specifically the track and field competitors. And this may sound kind of shallow, elitist, stupid, uh, insignificant, whatever. But I have a problem with many of the athletes, especially the runners. And that problem is the way these competitors pin on a number. I saw a number of <laughs> world-class athletes in what is their biggest event of their lifetime with numbers pinned on like they just entered the local 10K. They had their numbers flapping in the wind. They were pinned on crooked. Sometimes one pin would come undone during the race. Uh, As I watched these men and women go for gold, I kept saying to myself, what would Chris Lotz think of this? Now, Lotz is a local crit promoter and a former Marine, and he would scream at us to properly pin on our numbers. Lotz's prescription was to use seven pins, four on the corners, three on the edges. Seven pins makes the number lay flat, makes it easier to read, makes it more aerodynamic if you care about those things. I know what you're saying. Uh, Bikes go much faster, and having a properly fastened number actually can make a difference on a bike. But look, Usain Bolt can run 28 miles per hour. He won gold in the 200, but he missed his goal of breaking the world record. Hussein, hey, pin your number on properly, and maybe you'll pick up a little bit of speed. Uh, for more on number attachments, I'd encourage you to check out my piece on Red Kite Prayer. I wrote it a couple <laughs> years ago. Um, it's actually a review of some magnets called bib bits that allow you to pin on a number much quicker than using safety pins. I still prefer safety pins. I, I like a nice, flat clean looking number and i could care less if you're going 10 miles per hour or 50 uh, let's let's clean up the numbers especially our olympians so that I is i think my, you should start a consultancy yeah uh, that is my real rant <laughs> get those numbers <laughs> pinned on nicely please Atto boy ah thank you coming up uh, <laughs> patrick has an interesting development from a group that has historically not been an ally of mountain bikers. That is next on the pace line. What you want to do first is determine which side of the jersey the number needs to go on. Um, you're going to need uh, eight safety pins. Works well. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels, fatty of fatcyclist.com, Patrick Brady of redkiteprayer.com, and Michael Houghton. Uh, guys, on the show, we have spoken a lot about, especially recently, about advocacy, about trail advocacy, 
the STC, that's the Sustainable Trails Coalition, and IMBA, and their different positions on trail access and what should happen on uh, lands that are both managed by the federal government and private lands. This has become a, a wide-ranging discussion for us, um, especially since the three of us love to go off-road and we love to wander and find our ways, and we'd, we'd like to see more of those opportunities. Patrick, you came across an interesting development. Um, it's all regional in scope, but an interesting development out of North Carolina, I believe, involving the Sierra Club and their position on mountain bikers. Yeah, well, it should be clarified that, you know, this is one small faction within the larger uh, Sierra Club. So this is the Piedmont Plateau Group of the North Carolina chapter of the Sierra Club, okay? Um, but it's kind of, I, I don't want to say the first chink in the armor, but the first indication of an evolution in the thinking on the part of any members within the Sierra Club. Um, and so, you know, what's significant here is that for the first time, people have started thinking that, you know, well, you know, maybe mountain biking isn't such a, a bad thing. So um, Vance Arnold uh, with the group uh, observed that, you know, maybe it would be a good idea to actually allow uh, uh, off-road cyclists uh, into the area. Um, there is a, a, a great supporting quote uh from uh moni bates a field biologist uh there uh for the guilford county open spaces um and uh she said the best thing that could be done for this area but area would be to have the greensboro fat tire society come in and repair the damage done by previous illegal mountain bikers um I, you know there's been such a us against them thinking with regard to mountain biking and other, uh, outdoor groups, you know, long-term I've, I firmly believe, and a number of other people also share this view that, you know, at some point in order to continue to protect these spaces from private development, uh, all of the various user groups are going to have to come together, uh, and work together to make sure that, you know, we don't end up with, you know, subdivisions and strip malls and, you know, whatever else, uh, on these places that we treasure. Um, and so, you know, this isn't, um, uh, you know, this isn't yet something that we can attribute to, uh, all of the Sierra club, but at least it shows that there's, um, some evolution, uh, on the part of the thinking of some members, um, and it's, uh, I, you know, I, I think it's really helpful. One of the other things that we need to, to consider is that, you know, a lot of these, uh, groups are aging overall. And, uh, if we want to, uh, continue to have, um, real advocacy efforts, new blood's going to have to come in. And, uh, some of that's happening in the formation of new groups. Uh, I guess I'll give a little shout out here to Remba. Uh, the Redwood Empire Mountain Bike Alliance, which is a, uh, a new advocacy group uh, here in the North Bay. And uh, we just had our uh, founders party uh, this past weekend. And they're off and running with a, a new 501c3, uh, building a pump track next month. Or Sorry, uh, October. Uh, they're building a pump track uh, here in Santa Rosa. So I, I think that... Um, you know, as these uh, existing groups age, uh, there's going to be a, a real need um, in order to keep advocacy efforts going to embrace young blood. 
Um, so the issue in North Carolina, does that concern uh, federal lands? You know what kind of property they're talking about down there? Uh, it's the Rich Fork uh, Preserve. Um, and I, I'm not really sure if that's a uh, state or, or, uh, federal property. Um, so it's, um, uh, it's in the Greensboro high point area. Um, but no, I, I don't see, um, I haven't seen in what I've been able to read, whether it's a, a federal property or not. Right. And that chapter down there, I mean, they are already hearing some pushback on this, aren't they? I mean, this is not. You're talking about the Sierra Club, folks. You're talking about the group founded by the John Muir. And, and without John Muir, we would not have some of the, probably the national, certainly Yosemite would not probably exist. It probably would have been overrun by the San Francisco developers. Um, we, The national park system would not be what it is today without him. So I, I'm sure the Sierra Club and its leadership you know, they have a, a really, uh, probably a high view of themselves and their importance in, in the world, in the United States and the preservation of lands. So to make this kind of a leap to say, yeah, you know, those guys with knobby tires, we're going to invite them in. I mean, certainly one chapter can't do that, but do, do you feel like Patrick, they're starting to lean that way? Well, here's the thing. The, um, the piece that brought all of this to my attention uh, was by Vance Arnold, uh, who you know heads up that chapter. And there was a really significant uh, sentence within his uh, op-ed piece. And he said, I've personally walked some of the mountain bike trails along the reservoirs of Greensboro, and I've seen evidence of thoughtful design elements and no significant damage. Um, that runs completely counter to everything that the Sierra club has previously had to say about mountain biking and, and, you know, the sorts of trails that mountain bikers, uh, are cut. So, uh, you know, this, uh, I, I think, you know, it's important that for a revolution in thinking of this sort to happen, it's gotta come, you know, from down within the organization, you know, the Sierra club can't just do an about face, but as the membership begins to signal a change in its thinking that can allow, uh, the, the larger organization to gradually change its stance. And so, you know, this is, uh, this is the first indication that, you know, uh, even some of its members may be thinking differently. Mm -hmm. So what should we be telling paceliners, uh, people listen to this show, should we tell them, Hey, make friends with the Sierra club. They could be our friends. Should we say, be careful? Well, the, the, the first thing we need to do is make sure that we're engaged in our own advocacy efforts, uh, supporting, you know, mountain bike advocacy. So join Imba, you know, give a little money to the STC. You know, if you've got, you know, a local organization, like we have Remba here, um, you know, join your local organization. The first thing we need, we need to do is show that we have numbers and we do that by being part of the, the local advocacy efforts or, or, you know, even national, but make, you know, we don't count until we're members of some organization. Mm -hmm. We've got to demonstrate that we, we have significant numbers. Cool. Definitely a topic we're going to keep following. Also, we'll be, you know, we're going to keep our eye on this, this, uh, bill proposed by the STC about opening up wilderness areas, at least to the thought of 
having mountain bikes in some of them, or at least letting local managers decide whether or not mountain bikers should be allowed on into some uh, wilderness areas and its trails. So an ongoing topic and a very interesting one. And, and with the Sierra Club, if it, when they move, things will move. I mean, that is how powerful of an organization they are. Hey, guys, I got a lot of reaction to my um, my race day consumption that I detailed last show. And uh, while my list was a, a belly full, it lacked an important <laughs> detail. And that is the calorie count. So I took a chance this week to go ahead and tally up uh, all that was eaten and what it meant as far as energy is concerned. Quick, by the way, I also found this rather interesting. Team Sky for the Tour de France, their consumption was 1,000 gels, 570 energy bars, 1,200 bottles, 180 recovery drinks, and 200 overnight protein drinks. And that's what a team can ingest. Uh, My day and Fatty's day, much different, um, but still large nonetheless. So here's my calorie count from that day. Breakfast, the oats, the fruit, bacon, the prehydration drink, the hot drink, equaled about 800 calories. And then during the race, I ate three packs of Cliff Blocks, two Bonk Breaker Bars, half an almond butter sandwich, two pieces of Spanish tortilla, three Stroop waffles, one gel, a handful of potato chips, and that lovely piece of strudel. I calculated about 2,400 calories there for during the race. Then bottles consumed were seven plus a Coke. That's about 450 calories. I go with a light drink mix, so the calorie count per bottle is pretty low, except the Coke, of course. And then post-race, at the finish line, we ate ramen, potato chips, more soda, a small peanut butter sandwich, about 500 calories. Dinner was a burrito, beer, chocolate chip cookies for dessert, about 800 calories. And then overnight, I had that bowl of cereal worth about 200 calories. So the grand total of eating for that day, 5,200 calories. Now, the day in total was about a 10,000-calorie day. It's probably the energy that was needed for the full day, which is equal to a third of a gallon of gas or (laughs) 40,000 BTUs or 12 kilowatt hours. The average U.S. home consumes about 30 kilowatt hours per day, so I couldn't even have powered a home for a day. A third of a gallon of gas might get you 10 miles. Uh, What's cool about the human body, though, I think through these numbers here and all the eating and and the two shows worth of, uh, of food that I've brought you here is how the human body and proper training, um, even though I shortchanged myself on the fueling side, I was able to ride 104 miles and climb 12,000 feet thanks to two key players, an ability to convert stored fat to energy and the magical efficiency of a rotating lever attached to a sprocket and chain. That whole energy transfer system uh, makes it all possible to shortchange yourself by about 5,000 calories and still complete such a ride. <laughs> so there it is, the calorie count, 5,200 in eating on a 10,000-calorie effort. Yum. That was both very nerdy and very interesting. I, <laughs> that was good stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know why I've become fascinated with uh, energy expenditure recently, but uh, it sure. is interesting. I mean, there's a way to, to go out and find out just how much you go through to if you go get a resting metal. RMR, sorry, resting metabolic rate test and a VO2 max test. You can pinpoint just how many calories you are burning per day. And then you can also estimate need uh, if you're going to go into a large event like that. And you can know almost to 100 calories or so just what you're going to need for a full day's effort 
uh, such as a large one-day mountain bike race or even a criterium. So um, it is interesting stuff. And nutrition is is the new science. It's it's new. It's not well understood. Um, so it is kind of fascinating to try and biohack it. So uh, the real question is, yeah. did you say the name of the race during this segment? Nope. <laughs> okay. Just wanted to check and make sure. Still avoided it. Nice work. Only Patrick has uttered this word. <laughs> uh, coming up, some major bike biz news. And we do it when we buy new Firestones. Why not balance our bike wheels? That's next on the pace line. Eating is cheating, man. I think protein is really going to help me out in my season. Hey, man, do you have a gel? The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Patrick Brady of RedKitePro.com. Fatty from TheFatCyclist.com. And, of course, the Fatty Cast. Um, some pretty significant uh, business news here. Uh, the company that owns Fuji has per- uh, purchased, that is, Performance Bike. The purchase is for the 106 stores, the online component of both Performance and Nash Bar, and the Performance House brands. Um, ASI owns Fuji, SE, Kestrel, Breezer, Fat Cycles, and the component brand Oval Concepts, but Patrick, I get more importantly, I guess this puts Fuji what in some type of position to compete with some of the bigger bike brands. Yeah, that's the big news here. Uh, now, purchasing performance is going to upset an awful lot of Fuji's existing dealer base. Um, well, maybe not an awful lot, but certainly some of them. Anybody in close proximity to a performance location may not be very pleased with this, but it gives them a chance to go toe-to-toe with you know, specialized, giant, and Trek in terms of that whole concept store uh, business model. And that, you know, for all of the other brands that have wanted to have a greater presence in the retail world, um, that's been the big missing thing is, you know, how, how do you have a better dealer presence? And by buying performance, they suddenly get that. Um, it's, you know, it's really the biggest single thing that is challenging, you know, brands like Scott felt, you know, certainly, uh, Fuji has been one, you know, Bianchi, another big maker, uh, Cannondale, these brands, they're all suffering from the fact that more and more they're being squeezed out of giant Trek and specialized dealers. Mm. And so by buying all of performance, uh, Fuji has just completely sidestepped that. Well, ASI with their many brands. Um, but you can expect, um, those brands to suddenly have much better representation, you know, in the 200 odd, uh, performance locations around the country. Of course. And then people have got to be wondering, or at least companies like Ridley, GT, Diamondback, Schwinn, which are in performance now, I have to be wondering, okay, how do we fit into this picture? If Fuji is going to suddenly be running the the store, they're going to be minding the shop. Um, do we get, do we still have floor space, uh, in these shops? So that will need to be hashed out with the, um, ASI folks and Fuji and performance for that matter. Uh, guys, something I've always wondered about is, you know, we spin balance our wheels on our cars when we get new tires. Why not our bikes, especially deep carbon wheels? Fatty, do you have a, I know you like the time trial once in a while. Do you have a set of, uh, deep carbon wheels? 
I do. I actually have those on my road bike, a pair of NV606s. Um, and yeah, I uh, had those for, I think, three years now. Yeah. And the, you know, when that wheel is spinning, those deep wheels are spinning, there's a tremendous amount of centrifugal force. And if yeah. you put it in your bike stand, you'll notice if you spin the wheel, there's almost a little hop to it. You know, the deep carbon wheels, they'll, they'll move around a little bit on you. Uh, maybe but, yours, maybe mine, uh, maybe a lot of them actually. <laughs> uh, the deeper the wheel, the bigger the the imbalance. Right. Um, yeah. Apparently, Silka has been giving this some thought too. They're the famous pump maker, and uh, they now have a, a couple of products out that go kind of hand in hand with each other. One is the Speed Shield that covers kind of the valve hole on arrow wheels, and and then the second is. Um, uh, this uh, balancing weight. It's an adjustable counterweight that is attached to the rim opposite the valve stem. And there are tungsten weights inside um, the speed balance piece that can be uh, removed, that the weights inside can be removed to fine tune the balance of an aero carbon wheel. Um, here's part of a video Silka put out explaining how to install the system and exactly what it does. We've installed both speed shield and speed balance on our 808s. Now, aerodynamically, that's a one watt savings for a pair of wheels. That's a larger savings than you're gonna see from a ceramic bearing upgrade to your hub set. But even more importantly, we've reduced vibration caused by the wheel imbalance. Let's take a look at that. Speed Balance is able to remove over 90% of the vibrations from imbalanced wheels. That means greater speed, greater efficiency, better handling and comfort. That is Josh Portner, Silka's chief and former guru at Zips. So he knows both sides of the story here, Fatty. He knows you know, what, it, what it means to have a long valve core and a properly inflated tire. He also knows about deep dish wheels. Um, but again, going back to, to having deep carbon wheels on your bike, have you ever felt the wheels, um, at high speed jumping around more than you are comfortable with? Well, I haven't until now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that now every single ride, I'm going to be thinking about, Oh, I'm getting a lot of hop. Uh, no, the thing is, it's, Boy, Josh and the way he has reimagined Silk are just amazing. And they are, I mean, they're doing these iterative things, iterative changes with bikes and with bike accessories that are just amazing. I mean, yeah, it, absolutely. I've noticed a little bit of what I would call sort of a humming vibration for my wheels. Yeah. And I would love to see, uh, you know, with a relatively inexpensive change, uh, that diminish and it sounds like they are that they have got a pretty cool solution yep so again that's a new product from silka that helps you balance out your um, deep carbon wheels make them run a little smoother heck we do it on our cars when we get new tires so why not our why not our wheels uh final note here fatty and this is uh, kind of a funny one i suppose a, a thief was forced to leave behind a top of the line giant bicycle he stole from a a store in Cambridge, England. He couldn't get away because, as most of us know, a new bike does not have pedals. Now, shop <laughs> staff and customers chased the thief as he ran from the store. One customer hopped on a bike, with pedals of course, caught up to the thief who threw the bike to the ground when he realized 
He would not be able to escape and chase off. <laughs> he made off in a black Audi. Now, they're still looking for this guy. So for our Pace Line listeners in England, police say be on the lookout for a white guy, six foot one, athletic build, short light hair, between 20 to 30 years old. He had on black trousers, red, orange, and Nike shoes with orange laces and a gray fleece with a black Ferrari jacket underneath. <laughs> oh, and he that's needs a awesome. set of he needs a set of pedals too, quite obviously. Uh, I think the show has run its course, so um, let's check in with our uh, main players here. Fatty, what are you working on for Fat Cyclist and the Fatty Cast? Um. On the fatty cast, it's it's kind of on hiatus right now as I work on a lot of day job stuff. For the blog, I am several episodes into my race report of the race that I have promised to not mention by name today. <laughs> um, and I, after that, I've still got my Crusher and the Tusher race report. And I have a couple more coming up as well. So I'm going to be well into winter by the time I finish telling stories from what happened in the summer. But they're good stories. I love it. Thank I'm, you. I'm following along with your adventures with the hammer uh, at our last big race. So I think so far we have uh, we've made our way most of the way up uh, the first climb of the day. So. <laughs> Oh yeah, I take my time. I, I I'm a, in no rush to tell all this. It's a soap opera. You're a lot. It's episodic. Yeah. So, <laughs> yep, there's, yep. There's a point to it. Uh, look for uh, plenty of material from Patrick Brady. Um, from what sounds like uh, some uh, German hotspots. Uh, I don't know if he's going to be reviewing beer or bike product or both, but I, I imagine he'll mix the two. Uh, and uh, the pace line course is posted on red kite prayer go there for more on this show including links a comment section a photo or two the pace line can also be grabbed from itunes stitcher google music and of course this week as i told you i found it on podbean whatever that might be our twitter account is at paceline podcast so for fatty and patrick brady i am michael hotton we will talk to you next time on the pace line you should uh, go and edit out that big bump on my desk from, I think it's 24 minutes, six seconds. That was my cat clubbing his body into the uh, keyboard tray as he jumped into my lap. Okay. Edit. <laughs>